Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Good Sunday to every one of you, regardless of where you live around the world. Uh, hard to believe uh, for those of us who live here in the United States that in uh, four days from today it will be Thanksgiving. 2020 has certainly been um, a very um, unpredictable year, and I certainly would hope that no matter where all of you reside, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world, that everybody uh, continues to stay safe and practice uh, proper social distancing uh, protocol guidelines. Um, The cases, it seems like they are uh, spiking everywhere. Uh, The bigger question will be is uh, once these vaccines get um, implemented, or should I say introduced to the public, Uh, We certainly want to keep our fingers crossed and hope that the uh, vaccines will um, do what they're supposed to do. But from what I've read, even when even when uh, the vaccines do get administered to um, people, we can't go about living our lives like like life was itself prior to a coronavirus. So I guess the reason for saying all this is because, um, you know, there's so much uncertainty going on in the world, but yet there is a lot we can do as individuals and as a community uh, to be prepared for whatever unexpected uh, challenges lie before us, big and small. However, um, I was on the air with you all back on Friday uh, to discuss um, our new um, book topic for this uh, upcoming season, and we will be starting season seven today. It is uh, John Aller's uh, book from 2016, The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. Uh, The podcast for uh, this session, or for this particular uh, day's uh, session, will be uh, uh, the prologue to his book, meaning the introduction, and we will get an understanding of whom Francis Marion was and why his role in the American Revolution was so critical to where he truly did help save the American Revolution as we know it. But before we get um, to discussing the prologue, something else I should um, point out as a uh, piece of historical significance, I was uh, disappointed that the uh, newspapers didn't um, talk about it in uh, today's um, paper. But today marks the 57th anniversary of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy's assassination. Hard to believe that um, his assassination of November 22, 1963 was 57 years ago. And for my parents, the day President Kennedy was assassinated, it truly was their 9-11. My father has often told me where he was that day. He was... uh, I want to say he was in uh, 10th grade in uh, high school. And from the story he told me was that one of, uh, was that um, the teacher came back inside from the classroom. Uh, she went outside of the cl- classroom to, um, to, uh, talk to talk to another teacher about something very important. But when she came back inside, uh, my dad, along with the rest of his classmates, saw tears coming down her eyes. They weren't sure what it was, but then all of a sudden, um, the principal announced over the loud, over the uh, loudspeaker, what had happened. And my father said, as soon as he heard 
what had happened to President Kennedy, he said you could literally hear pins dropping. Everybody was just beside themselves. My father often said that November, the events of November 22nd, 1963, was a sign of the time that uh, innocence itself was lost. I have uh, done a fair amount of research on the Kennedy assassination over the last uh, 13, 14 years. I've read a fair number of books. If you wanted to ask my honest opinion about who, who was behind the assassination, I truly don't believe that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. I do believe that there um, was a shooter in the grassy knoll that fired the fatal shot. What I do know about John F. Kennedy is this. He was working tirelessly to promote world peace without having to resort to nuclear war. And how evident that was in 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the Soviets had brought um, nuclear um, missiles, or let alone weapon, or material that was capable of launching a nuclear weapon 90 miles from Miami, Florida. There were those in the military that did not like J John F. Kennedy. On the other hand, there were those who did. And... President Kennedy did a very remarkable move. Rather than engage the Soviets in war, he and Nikita Khrushchev, who was the premier of the Soviet Union, came together to compromise. Kennedy um, instituted a blockade of all uh, Soviet uh, ships that were present. Khrushchev requested that Kennedy and the U.S. military remove um, missiles from Turkey and from another Eastern European nation or two. They both agreed to the solutions, or let alone the resolutions, and nuclear war was averted. If any of you all ever have a chance to read JFK and the Unspeakable, why he died and why it matters, there's a reason for why it matters as to why he died. He sought world peace. Those who did not like him did not want world peace in the way he did. There were those who were willing to risk everything just for a nuclear war. If there was one president I lived under who came close to being a John F. Kennedy for his time, it was none other than Ronald Reagan. Why do I say Ronald Reagan? It was For one, the Reagan years were some of the safest years that I lived under as a president. But number two, Ronald Reagan finished what John F. Kennedy started. John F. Kennedy wanted, wanted so badly to win the Cold War without having to go to war, without having to fire a shot, that is a nuclear missile. Well, when Ronald Reagan became president, he was the, the one who predicted the Soviet Union would fall and how right he was. Even those within the Soviet Empire knew just how right Ronald Reagan was. But Ronald Reagan um, led the Soviets in an, there was an arms race, but Ronald Reagan obviously saw to it that the United States would prevail and that the Soviets would realize that they could never catch up with the United States with this in terms of trying to see about one superpower outdoing the other to see who would launch, who would be the first to launch a nuclear weapon. 
But in the end, Ronald Reagan prevailed, and as the late Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of England, said, Ronald Reagan won the Cold War without having to fire a shot. So, so basically, John F. Kennedy started, he laid the foundation by prevailing in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Sadly, it wasn't enough for those who did not share his views to want him out of office given what happened on November 22nd of 1963. But Ronald Reagan was able to prevail, and perhaps there was, there were, for a variety of different reasons, but this is where I see the, where, this is where I see a big comparison between both men. That's why I say to you all that Ronald Reagan was my JFK. So, let's just remember, folks, that uh, John F. Kennedy um, was, a, was a man of the ages, he uh, was only in office for a thousand days, but for a brief period of time, as his wife Jackie said, it was like Camelot. And that's really what the Kennedys represented. They represented a new era known as uh, Camelot in their eyes, the new frontier. Um, but we must not forget President Kennedy. Yes, he's been gone 57 years. But I also have to wonder what the world would have looked like had he still lived. We probably would not have had an escalation with Vietnam. But that's a whole other topic for another uh, discussion at another time. But let's just remember, uh, folks, um, that President Kennedy must not be forgotten. But anyways, let's move on to our uh, primary uh, topic, being none other than John Ollers' The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. So, let me ask you this, um, how, how will Francis Marion go about saving the American Revolution? Does he have George Washington-like qualities? Well, I know for starters he's not a general. He has not been, um, he has not participated in any fighting, say, up in New York or Trenton. He hasn't been in uh, Bunker Hill in Boston. So, where is Francis Marion from? I, I will tell you more about that in another podcast, but I can tell you right now for starters that he's from South Carolina, being down in the far south, second to uh, furthest uh, colony in the um, United States, or let alone states by now, because Georgia is the furthest. But we're going to um, go back in time to uh, 1780. This is where our time machine's going to take us back to, folks. So the prologue, which is what we're going to be focusing on, uh, being the introduction to this book, it's go John Aller is going to be discussing how Francis Marion comes on to um, the scene. So let's go to July 25th, 1780. We're already four years um, by this point, July 1780, we, that marks about four years since we officially declared our separation from England. The Revolutionary War has seen a lot of, um, it's seen a lot of ups and it's seen a lot of downs. And there have been a lot of what I call middle of the road stuff. Basically, George Washington and the Continental Army have seen it all. So, on the day of July 25th, 1780, 
a group of 20 renegade militia volunteers, or what I call volunteersmen, and I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, what are renegades? Well, another word for renegades, it's kind of like outlaws. Mis Some people might think of them as mischiefs. Uh, people who have formed a small band of, um, what do you call it, not pirates, but people who are just different from the rest of the um, outsiders. A rough crew, perhaps. So we know that on July 25th, 1780, about roughly around 20 renegade militia volunteersmen arrived by horseback into General Horatio Gates's camp at Hollingsworth's, Hollingsworth's Farm, located on the Deep River near Buffalo Ford, North Carolina. And if any of you all are wondering now, who is George Washington still the commander of the Continental Army? Yes, he still is the commander, but is he going to be the commander of what we now call the Southern Continental Army? No. Continent, the Continental Congress has now uh, given that role to Horatio Gates. I can tell you this much, George Washington is very, very disappointed with, with the Continental Congress's um, appointment of Horatio Gates. And I can tell you this much about Horatio Gates. He is a very, very unpredictable man. Someone who is unpredictable for all the wrong reasons. And I will be telling you all more of that here shortly. But he is, for right now, the new uh, commander of the Southern Continental Army. Now, for these 20 rene renegade militia volunteersmen... Uh, they are comprised of a variety of uh, people. In other words, it's not one race of people. You've got some people of uh, Caucasian. You've got some who are of um, African-American um, who are with the group. You also have a, a few Catawba Indians. And what, what we must remember during the American Revolutionary War time is that you have Indians that are on the side of the Patriots, and we also have Indians that are on the side of the British. As for the Catawbas, they are on the side of the Americans. Those of you who want to know, there is a college in North Carolina outside of um, Salisbury, uh, which is in western North Carolina, known as Catawba College, named after none other than the Catawba Indians. The Catawbas were enemies of not only to the British, but that of the Cherokees. And then uh, this group of um, renegade militia volunteersmen also comprised of a small number of younger men who were only in their early teens. We have to remember, folks, if a, a young man made it past the age of 10, he was already considered an adult. So... I find it hard to believe that, hey, there is a 13, there are a few 13 and 14 year old men and set by 1780 standards already in the militia. But hey, they're not afraid to take a stand and uh, fight for their country. More power to them. I'm going to ask you all this. Do you think that these 20 renegade militia volunteersmen received a uh, proper welcome by General Horatio Gates and his men? No, they didn't. And a, and a lot of it had to do with their clothing attire, which was not on the same par as those men of continental ranking status. Not just continental ranking status, 
but just the clothing itself. If you were a regular in the Continental Army, you would have had a uniform that was uh, red, white, and blue, you know, typical of uh, U.S. Uh, flag colors, but it would have been a step above what um, these 20 renegade militiamen were wearing. They were just wearing rugged clothing, uh, clothing that would have been uh, typical of a frontiersman out on the uh, frontiers of, of uh, frontier life. Basically, um, in a log cabin, you know, someone come, wears clothing that would resemble working on uh, building uh, log cabins, for example. But you know what? Sometimes those who come aboard with uh, rugged clothing often end up outsmarting uh, those above them. I think this is also a good example of that old saying, don't judge a book by its cover. In other words, yes, the person you may see in front of you may not be the, could, he or she may not be the best well-dressed of persons, but it turns out, it could end up turning out that that individual has as big of a heart in terms of being compassionate towards others, just like the person who um, always seems to dress better. So this is a good example right here where General Horatio Gates and his men have rushed to judgment all of a sudden. So who is the head of this renegade militiaman force team? Well, he was a, he's a 48-year-old man. He stands around 5 feet 2 inches tall, weighs around 110 pounds. He's mustered, he goes about mustering up enough courage to warn the Continental soldiers to, refer, to refrain from further remarks regarding his group's appearance. Now that takes a lot of guts right there. Regardless of how tall you are, regardless of the appearance, the fact that all of these men, 20 renegade men, arrived by horseback, they have an advantage. How so? Because the because General Horatio Gates and his men of continental ranking status don't even have horses. You know, not everybody owns a horse at this time, but having a horse is a huge part of one's livelihood because getting around from point A to point B by horse is a lot faster than, say, walking somewhere from point A to point B. It was all people, uh, reenactors or interpreters at Colonia Williamsburg often say this. My wife and I hear it a lot that if a person stole another man's horse, that person might as well have stolen the, the other man's livelihood. Because without a horse, how is a man going to be able to get around from point A to point B? So thank heavens this 48 year old man has uh, mustered up enough courage to let the Continentals know, especially General Horatio Gates know that, hey, we're not, going to be, we're not going to sit here and be treated like a punching bag. You either show us some respect, and if you can't, then we'll show you how it's done. So, right before 1780, and I will mention more about this in another podcast, episode, but in 1778, two years earlier, 1778 is the year that marks the beginning of Britain's new war strategy, invading the southern colonies, or what's become known as the Southern Military Campaign. July of 1780, 
will mark a very dangerous moment for the Patriot cause in the South. Given two months earlier, in May, the port of Charleston fell into British hands after a six-week siege had come to an end, which also brought about the biggest disaster Patriot forces would endure throughout the war. The British would go about setting up a network of forts and outposts from the Atlantic coast to, to the western mountains to control South Carolina's interior. So it is fair to say this, that given that July 1780 marks a dangerous moment, what it means is that here we go again. We could be on the brink again of seeing the Revolutionary War itself collapse or become, what do you call it, extinguished because we were not up to our best um, means of protecting not only our people but protecting the cities, but by not gathering the right intelligence at the right time to mount um, to mount all the, the, the defensive measures to be able to ward off the worst of what would eventually come. Because if we think July 1780 is bad now, the next month after will be even worse. And that I will mention to you all here um, towards the end of this uh, podcast. But it, what I find interesting about the American Revolution, well, there are a lot of things I find interesting about it. It's one of my favorite uh, topics to discuss and read about. But regardless of the battle and regardless of where the battles took place, it always seemed as though the battles themselves for the Continental Army were a case of make it or break it. You know, it's very easy to think, oh, well, if they lost the battle, they just learned how to regroup very quickly and went about uh, learning from their mistakes and and all of a sudden they did the improbable by coming back the second go-around and defeated the British. You know, that's wishful thinking, but I can tell you this, folks. There were plenty of soldiers who were disgruntled over the fact that that uh, the British had gotten the upper hand in consecutive battles, most notably in New York, where Washington was teetering on the brink of... Uh, of um, collapse with the Continental Army. Uh, for those of you who have listened to other podcasts of mine, what saved Washington was uh, December of 1776 when he and his uh, 2,400 uh, ragtag uh, Continental Army um, launched the surprise attack on the Hessians at Trenton, which uh, greatly restored morale for the cause. Uh, the bottom line is that um, Fighting this war was no cakewalk, but for all of the uh, defeats that Washington endured, he somehow was able to make up for them with um, victories, not just on the battlefield, but with a strong sense of leadership and uh, command, because after all, he is commanding what the outsiders view as a bunch of, as a bunch of ragtags, or let alone He's commanding peasants with pitchforks is how some of the British, uh, high-ranking British officers um, viewed the Americans. So, 
The 48-year-old man who uh, headed up the renegade militia force that arrived into General Gates's camp on July 25th of 1780 was none other than Mr. Francis Marion, whom already had attained continental officer status around the time which Charleston itself had fallen into British hands. There you have it, folks. Francis Marion was that 48-year-old man who uh, put Horatio Gates and his other um, fellow Continental um, Army um, men in their place. But here's the, here's the um, kicker to it. As I said earlier, Gates and his men rushed to judgment. They thought this renegade group of men that arrived in were just um, a bunch of um, fuddy-duds by the way they dressed. But what they didn't realize is that Francis Marion, he's already achieved or attained continental, a continental officer status. The thing, though, is that he is disguising it rather very well. He doesn't have to come in all dressed up in his best attire to prove what status he has. What he's got to prove is that he can do things differently compared to what General Horatio Gates believes in when it comes to conducting warfare. And we're going to get to that part here soon. Francis Marion would go into hiding after the fall of Charleston, most notably staying with friends and relatives on their plantations along the Santee River in South Carolina's Low Country. And the geographical part of South Carolina, I will get to in an in another um, upcoming podcast session, which I do believe is important to um, to discuss because uh, South Carolina is often referred to in terms of its ge- geography as low country and upper country. July 25th of 1780, the day that uh, Francis Marion and his militiamen arrived into Hollingsworth Farm, It wasn't so much, oh, welcome, it's so nice to meet you, Um, what can we do for you? Here's where you're going to be lodging until um, further notice. It wasn't all about that. What Francis Marion and his militiamen are there for is that they are there to learn about what Horatio Gates has in store against the British strategy-wise. Well, what is General Horatio Gates's uh, strategy? Well, his strategy is to send an army out to the British post at Camden, which is located in north-central South Carolina, uh, north of Columbia, present-day capital of South Carolina. And if those of you are wondering, during the American Revolution or even before the war, where is the capital of South Carolina? It's not in the upper country, it's in the lower country. It's at a place known... We, we, we refer to it as Charleston today, but at the time it was known as Charlestown. So that's where the capital of South Carolina is during the American Revolution. So Camden, as I said a moment ago, is north of Columbia, being north-central South Carolina. Gates's forces would go up against a fellow named Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis, who would eventually become Lord Charles Cornwallis. Now, I think it's important to kind of know about Horatio Gates. What I can tell you this is that um, he is no George Washington. He is, um, he's not a Marquis de Lafayette. 
what I do know is that he was that he was um, awarded. Um, how do I call it? He was given um, recognition for um, winning the battle at Saratoga in New York State in 1777, which was the battle that, in the end, ultimately persuaded the French to um, ally with the United States in the war against Britain. However, uh, what happened at Saratoga impacted one fellow patriot who um, who was uh, stung in ways that he never got over. As a matter of fact, he was even quoted as saying, I wish I had been shot in the heart rather than in the leg. That fellow's name was Benedict Arnold. Benedict, Benedict Arnold, even at from what I've read about it, and a lot of historians will say this, Benedict Arnold should have gotten um, greater recognition for how he went about um, helping the Continental Army defeat the British at Saratoga. Horatio Gates was very jealous of Benedict Arnold. He Basically, Gates was a control freak. Gates was a micromanager, a man who believed in just doing everything on his own without the support of um, outside um, leadership from the highest ranks of the military. Gates even went as far, folks, as wanting to um, become the actual head of the Continental Army. In other words, he was a part of that infamous cabal plot that tried to overthrow George Washington as commander of the Continental Army, and Horatio Gates would have succeeded him. If that, if that had all prevailed, I'm not sure we would have won the war. That's how um, unpredictable and ineffective, in my opinion, that Horatio Gates truly is, but we can find out more here as to why Horatio Gates is the person he is and why the military decisions he makes going into the next month at Camden will come back and get him. Not just come back and get him, but will basically cause him to shoot himself in the foot. So Horatio Gates basically is an officer. He is set in his own ways, as I said a moment ago, regarding military combat fighting. He favors open field warfare battle. He doesn't really have a whole lot of place for outsiders like Francis Marion and his renegade militiamen. However, um, two days after their arrival, being on July 27th, as a courtesy gesture to make up for the um, rush to judgment with how Marion and his men were dressed, he allows Marion and his fellow comrades to ride up front with him. Gates knows about other tactics that have been used in past military um, combat, most notably from the French and Indian War. He knows about a thing or two called ambushes, which are surprise attacks out of nowhere. Ambushes usually don't involve traditional um, fighting, or what I call open battlefield fighting, where um, forces from one uh, one opposite end to the other line up in a battle in an open battlefield and fire at one another it turns out that uh, the ambush tactics that had been used were most notably done so by native americans along the carolina frontier during the french and indian war 
It was during that war that Francis Marion himself had learned the, about these ambush tactics. And I will get to those ambush tactics here shortly. So, Francis Marion already knows something about warfare that Horatio Gates does not value. He does, Marion believes that war itself should be fought in a variety of different ways. Marion knows that open field combat is okay, but it can't be for every battle. He also knows that whatever, was fought, whatever strategies were used at Saratoga aren't going to be able to be used in South Carolina. It's like that old saying, what, worked, what works for one person doesn't work for someone else, or what may have worked before um, may not work in today's setting. And lastly, uh, Horatio Gates has no respect for cavalry use, especially knowing that was how Marion and his renegade force arrived into the camp. So the bottom line is, you know, if Horatio Gates is really worried about how to um, slow down his enemy being the British, don't you think it would make wise sense to have a group of um, men go by horse to see where they could scout um, the closest uh, British movement or to scout potential British movements so this way we would have a one-step advantage on them and not be uh, surprised by an ambush attack? No, France, uh, Horatio Gates doesn't believe that, folks. So... Where do Francis Marion and his renegade militiamen go from here? Well, on August 15, 1780, Gates sends Marion and his men to Williamsburg Township in going about assisting with, with a militia establishment. Williamsburg Township is a Whig stronghold northeast of the Santee River. Okay, here's a little terminology right here, folks. What are Whigs? Are they, are they loyalists or, or what we think of in, in a different version as patriots? Whigs are patriots. They, um, don't want, they don't have any loyalty to England. They don't want to be ruled by a tyrant who lives 3,000 miles away. They don't want Parliament taxing them without their consent. They don't want... They want uh, proper representation, with, which means giving proper consent on all uh, matters voted before the floor of Parliament. Even though, yes, we've declared our uh, separation from England, we still want to ensure that, hey, for one, for what we believe in, and two, that, hey, it, what we believe in is something, what we believe in is a, a form of government that does not call on a tyrant to impose his will on the people for all the wrong reasons. So, Williamsburg Township is, yes, a Whig stronghold, and the people in this township are very independent. And what I mean by independent is they obviously don't want to be a burden on anyone else from above or let alone from outside. But the people of Williamsburg Township are Scotch-Irish uh, Scotch Presbyterians. And they resist all forms of outside authority. 
But what are they in need of? They're in need of strong uh, military leadership. So it will be interesting to find out here if, in fact, any of these um, people, let alone those from this um, militia, are going to be respectful of Mr. Francis Marion. So let's go two days uh, forward to August 17, 1780. Francis Marion comes to Witherspoon's Ferry on Lynch's Creek, which is in present-day Johnsonville, South Carolina, which is, um, I looked that up, uh, Johnsonville, South Carolina is outside of um, Florence. So he um, heads up the Williamsburg Militia. He would, he would be um, faced with um, overseeing 200 rank-and-file militiamen whom were volunteer fighters. But here's the thing, though. Francis Marion himself has no legal authority over these people. So, in other words, how do you go about winning the trust of these men? Because, remember, militia being in the militia is just a volunteer organization. It's not permanent. You come and go as you please. But when you're in the militia, you can pretty much set your own rules at any given time. People can rotate, taking turns. That doesn't mean that transition goes smooth, but what it just means is that it's a come-and-go organization. It doesn't have any, what you call, long-term structure. It's just based upon meeting short-term objectives. So, as I said a moment ago, the militiamen are free to come and go as they wished, but that also means fighting for whomever they wanted to do so. So in other words, you could be in one militia group today, but if you weren't happy, you could leave that same day and go somewhere else to fight. So, Marion, though, has a disadvantage. He has no formal militia command, but yet he, but yet he was invited to Witherspoon's Ferry by invitation only. So I'm almost beginning to wonder if Marion's invitation to Witherspoon's Ferry was just by invitation only. Is this, to, is this a tryout session? In other words, are, are, the militia, are the militia wanting to interview people? I mean, are they, look, are they saying, hey, what do we like about this guy? What don't we like about him? If we don't like him, we can always find someone else. There is good news, though, for Francis Marion. He's going to have a hand, handful of uh, followers, or not followers, but men who, whom he has known for some time come to his defense who are there. A, major, a man by the name of Major John James will come to Marion's defense. He had a great amount of military experience, including militia formation. So, it's one thing to have a friend in the military, but someone who knows how to go about forming militias is an even bigger advantage. He is an elder in the Presbyterian Church, was a and he was also a handful of Whigs whom refused to sign an allegiance oath to the crown after Charleston had fallen. Then you have two men who are brothers named Hugh and Peter Ory. Their last name is spelled Hori with an H, but it's actually, uh, but if you pronounce it, it spells Ori. And there is a county in South Carolina called Ori County, which is um, right on the outskirts of Myrtle Beach. These men 
approved of Marion's leadership, and they would become two of his most trusted military confidant sources. Just when it looked like there, Marion was going to be faced with a, a daunting uphill battle to win the trust of the militiamen, he's already got his um, position secured thanks to the Ory brothers and to Major John James. Without them, I don't know if he could have won the trust of the militiamen. Now, Witherspoon's ferry is very critical because it's, it's just not a ferry. It's a, it's a ferry where uh, you can get, a, get from point A to point B by boat. In other words, it's a, a ferry station where you can, um, well, people might say today's time rent a boat or let alone take a boat to get from, from where you need to go uh, from point A to point B because a lot of the roads in South Carolina are not of um, best quality and so therefore it's probably a lot easier to navigate by water than it is by road from getting to uh, point A, point B destinations. But Witherspoon's Ferry is named in honor of the Witherspoon family whom ran this ferry landing but they were also um, a prominent Presbyterian family. So you know, when you serve in the militia, you can come from just about anywhere, but remember, the militia at this time is comprised of all locals. So Marion's brigade is comprised of Huguenot plantation owners from the Santee and PD River regions. And I'll uh, mention about those rivers uh, when I talk more about uh, South Carolina's geography in an upcoming uh, pod podcast session down the road here soon. So I think it's pretty unique to know that the brigade itself is comprised of um, plantation owners from both of the uh, river regions of the Santee and PD River. So what I, what, you know, when we think of militiamen, we usually tend to think of um, the lower levels of society, but now I'm being reminded that even militiamen are comprised of those who are, um, from the middling sorts or the middle rankings of society, they might they might even come from the most upper ranks of society. But the bottom line is that it's a good uh, diversity of uh, plantation owners coming together to not only voice their opposition and hostility towards the British, but to um, go about fulfilling a mission, and that is to keep the uh, cause for independence alive by doing by engaging with different um, warlike strategies compared to what compared to that um, more typical open warfield battle combat. Now Francis Marion, here's where we get into um, the good details right here. Francis Marion and his uh, ragtag ba band of uh, militia men or renegade forces would go on to fight a different style war approach known as guerrilla warfare. I will tell you this much. Francis Marion did not invent guerrilla warfare. However, what the reason why it's called guerrilla warfare is because it's, um, because it's not... Um, regular style fighting. His style, or let alone method, method of fighting, went about using tac tactics to kill the enemy, in this case being the British from secret hideaways, 
which also enabled them to have a one-up advantage with land terrain as well as establishing a solid spy network. And this also provided for, ex, for um, cavalry leadership in, in terms of getting cavalry riders out ahead of time to man posts that could oversee British troop movement coming from a particular direction. So guerrilla warfare is not basically, it's not visible to everybody. Guerrilla warfare is warfare that is lethal, but it's on a smaller scale, but yet it can still inflict damage on the enemy. And as I said earlier, Francis Marion didn't invent guerrilla warfare style fighting, but he would become the first in the Revolutionary War. He would be the first Revolutionary War leader to implement a system of irregular fighting, one that became the opposite of traditional open field engagements. What was the objective at Witherspoon's Ferry on August 17, 1780? Why did General Horatio Gates send Marion and his um, renegade force there? Their mission at Witherspoon's Ferry was to burn all the boats and canoes along the lower and upper Santee River to prevent British troops, or let alone loyalists, whom were loyal to the crown from crossing the river and creating further havoc to the patriots. You know, yes, it would be foolish to destroy uh, the canoes and boats, but at the same time, do you want the enemy to have access to it? No. And now I know on the other hand, why not take some of those boats and canoes for your own use? Well, don't worry, folks. Francis Marion and his men will be able to uh, maneuver around from point A to point B. But at the same time, if you have the opportunity to destroy something that's valuable that you don't want the enemy to have hands on, then take advantage of it. Because by doing so, it will make it harder on the enemy to be able to navigate from point A to point B and know and know the same kind of knowledge that you might have about shortcuts to get uh, to um, certain um, points over, say, a five or ten mile radius. But if you, on the other hand, are a patriot and you know all the ins and outs and the loyalists or the British military doesn't, find every advantage there is possible to reduce their chances of even coming close to getting a one-step advantage on you. So it turns out that uh, Peter Ory would be in charge of the Lower Santee operation uh, plan for uh, burning uh, boats and canoes, whereas Francis Marion would be in charge of the upper uh, portion of the river. Now the straw that breaks the camel's back will be uh, the following that happens on two days after uh, Marion and his men achieved their objective by burning the boats and canoes along the lower and upper Santee River. On August 19th of 1780, Francis Marion learns about the British rout of Gates's army at Camden. This, in my opinion, was a battle that probably never should have happened. But then again, there could have been a lot, there could have been better leadership on the part of Gates, but Gates acted very cowardly, and he was very ignorant 
to those who were below him. 2,500 Virginia and North Carolina militia troops fled in terror as British troops charged forward with fixed bayonets. Well, if I had never seen a, an enemy, being the British, fix their uh, rifles with a bayonet, I probably would be frightened knowing that the bayonet was 18 inches long and if it were stabbed into my body, what horror that would inflict. Remember, folks, bayonets were used as a last resort to finish off your enemy. And more often than not, when the British, for example, knew that uh, they had um, inflicted um, major, um, what do you call it? They inflicted major wounds or major um, harm on um, the patriots in a, in a battle or two. They knew the best way to really frighten them off or let alone just finish them off was to get within a 50-yard range to have your bayonets ready for a bayonet charge. That would be the ultimate way to finish the job on the enemy. What I also will tell you this is that it wasn't just so much that the Virginia and North Carolina militia troops had fled in terror. Horatio Gate, General Horatio Gates forced the men to fight against their own will. They were not in any kind of proper um, health, proper physical shape to even fight. Many of these men had marched, especially from Virginia, had marched 400 miles south to South Carolina to fight. And I can, if any of you all have been to South Carolina, say in August or in the summer, it's hot. We're looking at about 90 degree weather with heat index probably about somewhere close to 100 degrees. And if that isn't bad enough, historians do know that a handful of troops were so um, malnourished, they had not um, had enough quality food to um, put into their bodies, that um, in order to keep their soup um, from spoiling, a fair number of soldiers had to use hair powder to thicken their soup. I can't imagine having been in that, being in that situation using hair powder to thicken my soup just so that it wouldn't go bad. But folks, that's the reality of what these men were uh, faced with. Here they were being, being forced against their own will to do something that they probably knew deep down they could not um, take on. But yet as they got out on the battlefield, the Battle of Camden was over in a short period of time. So to put it to sum it up here, General Gates's men were in poor condition to fight, which uh, which led to a disastrous outcome. If the Battle of Charleston was bad enough in terms of us losing the port of Charleston, the Battle of Camden would mark the second defeat in three months where the Continental Army got routed. Horatio Gates left the Camden battlefield in disgrace. And the loss at Camden also brought his military career to a complete end. He fled by horseback. He abandoned his troops. His troops have uh, nobody now that they can look up to. They're, they've pretty much been left to fend for themselves. Those who, say, were not um, taken uh, prisoner of war by the British. 
And then on August the 18th, uh, a day earlier, uh, Thomas Sumter's force of 800 was defeated by a smaller British force, British force at Fishing Creek, four miles north of Camden. These back-to-back -back defeats would be seen as a dark moment in the fight for independence. The Southern, um, the Southern Continental Army is in terrible shape. And for the British, their objective is to break the South. If they can break the South, then they are very well inclined to believe that the rest of, um, the rest of what they often refer to as colonial America or the, U the new United States will be uh, returned back into the hands of uh, the monarch, not just the monarch being King George III, but that of Parliament. They will be able to return the 13 states into subjects under, under an empire, not just short-term, but long-term. The final note to this prologue that is going to that's going to be all the more important in understanding why Francis Marion is so essential to saving the American Revolution is the following: In the aftermath of back-to-back -back disastrous defeats, only one patriot leader still remained untouched in the South, or or let alone I should say in South Carolina. Francis Marion, whom went about going forward, how did he go about moving forward knowing that he's just found out that we've been routed at Camden, we've been defeated at Fishing Creek, we've basically suffered three defeats in three months, two back from back-to-back -back days in August, and then you have um, from a few months earlier in um, Charleston or Charlestown, Francis Marion has a choice. He could either tell his renegade militiamen what has just happened at Charleston and uh, Fishing Creek, or he can keep the news to himself and find a way to uh, prevent further negativity by reinventing by reinventing uh, the uh, future for how um, the war itself ought to uh, go. Francis Marion makes a shrewd move by keeping the sad news to himself and instead will charts a new course. He forges a new front by waging guerrilla-style fighting against the enemy. A new militaristic fighting approach would allow South Carolina as a state to have new hope for Patriots' cause in attaining independence from England. Francis Marion would become a hero who is about to rise from the ashes around him and revolutionize his state's future, but perhaps that of the entire nation. This is the story about a man whose mission was to save the American Revolution by going rogue, fighting non-conventionally. Well, folks... This was the prologue to John Aller's The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. Fasten your seatbelts because we have a lot more exciting things to learn about Francis Marion. Some of this includes his background, but we will also learn how he manages to uh, avoid getting caught by the British. 
that is a story unto itself. But South Carolina does still have hope. It's hanging by a thread. But that thread that's keeping it alive is none other than Francis Marion. And by not telling his renegade, by not telling the militia, let alone, I should say, not just the 20 men who followed him on July 25th to meet Horatio Gates, but as well, but he also keeps us from the 200 militiamen from Witherspoon's Ferry, from Williamsburg Township. He keeps, he prevents them from knowing. In other words, Marion doesn't have time for desertion. Marion doesn't have time for conflict from within. What he has time for is to chart his new course, and by doing so, to get these men refocused, to get to make warfare different. In other words, reinvent it by going rogue. Let's not send everybody out in the open battlefield to fight. Let's go undercover. Let's, uh, let's hit the targets where they would least expect us to be um, following them. That's how guerrilla warfare is going to be done. I look forward to sharing all look forward to sharing more about it with you all my listeners well i hope to be back on the air again here soon uh take care and stay safe